Welcome back once again to Civil Action. Thank you for joining us today. As always, every week, we try to bring you exciting, interesting cases. We try. That come out of the Court of Appeal. We try. Can I at least finish? Okay, go ahead. Finish your introduction, Brian. We bring you interesting cases that come out of the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, and sometimes the United States Supreme Court that affects plaintiffs in their practice, plaintiff lawyers in their practice, and... Today is no exception. We have some great cases. Say hello to um, Shant Karnikian. Are you telling me to say hello? Or are you yes, I am. I am. It's not live. Okay, so today we have four cases. We're going to try to keep it a little short, um, like me and Brian. And uh, so the first two cases have to do with legal malpractice and uh, standing in legal malpractice cases and the statute of limitations applicable in legal malpractice cases. And then next we're going to talk about two cases that have to do with Dynamex, um, the joint employer doctrine, the retroactive applicability of Dynamex, and some interesting stuff there. All of these are California Court of Appeal cases. So let's dive right into the first one. Well, actually, before we do that, I forgot. I'm Brian Kabatek, and this is Sean Karnick. And, and I forgot that at the very beginning. You forgot that you're Brian Kabatek? And then I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to have you tell people where they could find us. Sure. They, I forgot where they could find us. Where are we? No, you can find us on, online at kbklawyers.com. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. We've been getting some positive feedback, and Brian's been getting some negative feedback about, That's not true. about his analysis. That's not true. People yeah, love people, me. They find you boring. Unless you pay them. You know, I think you and I find our banter funnier than anybody else. Yeah, that's true. We should have someone on to to make fun of us. Nope. No? No, I got you to do that. Yeah, that's true. So the first case we're going to cover today is a case called Sharon versus Porter. Peter Porter. Peter Porter. Say that three Uh, times. Elise Sharon versus Peter Porter is the case. And this is from the 4th DCA. Right. And this case involves legal malpractice and specifically it includes... The statute of limitations for legal malpractice. So let's just completely be honest with folks listening. For those people out there that believe that the legislature, at least at one point in time, had a lot of lawyers and that lawyers were looking out for each other, need look no further than the statute of limitations for legal malpractice. Mm -hmm. Because the statute of limitations for legal malpractice is in its simplest form a year. And it, it really has very few exceptions to that year. And then the question, of course, is when does the statute of limitations run? So let's go through the facts of this case. All right. So in 2008, a long, long time ago, uh, in 2008, Peter Porter um, was a lawyer that represented Elise Sharon in a lawsuit resulting in a 2008 default judgment in favor of Sharon. So Peter did a good job, got a default judgment. Uh, Turns out, however, in the complaint that Peter had filed, there was no specific amount. So technically, and this becomes an issue later in the case, the default judgment is void. It's not valid because there's no amount specified in the lawsuit. It's an extra little tidbit we're giving people. Right, extra free advice. Or you have to serve a statement of damages. That's true. That's absolutely right, actually. So anyway, in 2015, one of the judgment debtors, and what's a judgment debtor, Brian? Someone who owes money as a result of a judgment. Right. And in this also case- Also called a loser. Uh, yeah. The, one of the losers contacted uh, Miss Sharon and said, hey, your judgment is void. You don't have a valid judgment against me. And then makes a motion 
to, she also then went to a lawyer. She went to a lawyer. Who gave her the opinion that it was void. Went to a lawyer and said it's void. And the loser here, who's uh, arguing that the judgment is void, makes a motion seeking to vacate the judgment. Right. And it gets gra- and it gets granted. And keep in mind, this is like seven, eight years after the that default happens judgment in 2016. Was in 2017, yep. she then files the legal malpractice case. So the question in this case is if the date that the the Statute of limitations, the one-year statute of limitations starts to run is when the court deems the default judgment void. If she filed in a year within that, which she did, the lawsuit would have been – or the legal malpractice lawsuit would have been valid if that was the trigger date, yeah. the court order. Yeah. So let's talk about the the kind of statutory framework of the legal malpractice statute of limitations. So it comes from section uh, 340.6 of the Code of Civil Procedure, and really there's two things that you need to keep in mind. Um, it's one year after the plaintiff discovers or should have discovered – uh, the wrongful act or omission, or four years from the date of wrongful act or omission, whichever occurs first. So it's really one year with a maximum of four years. So it's one year from when you discover it with a maximum, absolute maximum of four years, right? Right, but but the four years is kind of funky, and we're not really talking about that in this case. The right. real issue in this case is the discovery. When does that cause of action start to run? What is it? And what the court says is it's when the client suffers appreciable harm as a consequence of the lawyer's legal malpractice. Actual injury, yeah. And here the argument was she didn't suffer it until such time as the court entered an official order that the judgment was void, the default judgment was void. And the lawyer argued, no, it ran from the time you knew that it was void. Right. But what what the Court of Appeal does is they look at the judgment and the nature of the judgment, and, and they say that it, it is void. Right. Right. So they made a determination that was void, and they also made a determination that the lawyer that was advising her in 2015 declared that it was void at that time. And here's the real conundrum, and you might want to write that word down, Sean. It's, it's a, a big, big word. word. That's big a lot word. of syllables. Conundrum. The conundrum yeah. in this case is – does the plaintiff have to file the lawsuit within one year of the lawyer advising him it was void or with one year of the court declaring it void? And the court in this case says, nope, you have to file it from the minute you knew that it was void, and that was 2015. Got it? Right. And she didn't file it to 2017. So 2015 is more than one year um, before 2017. You got that? Yeah, that's like two years almost. Cor- could be. Um, yep. And what the court actually said here is, they said, we understand that this does present a conundrum because you might have to file a malpractice lawsuit before there's official ruling that something is void. But when you're on notice, you're on notice not only of the defect, but you're on notice of your obligation to file a legal malpractice yeah. case. And so Brightline Rule, it's one of the areas of Brightline Rules. It is true people could criticize 340.6 because it protects lawyers with a very tight and stringent and unique statute of limitations that doesn't exist anywhere else. It's only for legal malpractice that 340.6 exists. So that takes us to our next case. Next case is Sprengel versus Ziblut. Z-B-Y-L-U-T. How do you pronounce that? Sure. Sure. Okay. Ziblit. Gene Springer versus Gregory Ziblit. Ziblit. Uh, this is a second appellate district case. Also um, a legal malpractice case. Yes. And the question here is a little different. It's about 
whether or not an attorney-client relationship exists and whether or not a plaintiff has standing. So one thing all of us know from law school or from learning this is that you don't have to have a written retainer agreement to be a lawyer for somebody. You don't have to have uh, an actual official legal relationship in the sense that it's all documented. And that's one of the things you're always taught is be careful when you're giving people advice. But this case is is unique and different because it involves the representation of a corporation and whether or not there was an implied attorney-client relationship for one of the 50% shareholders. Yeah. So um, this uh, lady, Jean Sprengel, uh, started a publication company called Purposeful Press. Purposeful Press was making a book uh, or publishing a book. I don't know if they really got off the ground, but there was a partner named Moore. M-O-H-R, and they were 50-50 partners, and at some point they had a partnership or management dispute, and Moore went out and hired a lawyer, uh, a law firm by the name, uh, uh, or a lawyer by the name of Gregory Ziblett. Let's just go with Cox. Sure, Cox. Vincent Cox. Cox's firm, exactly. Who is the same firm as Ziblett? That's right. Okay. So that the Cox firm represented the company. And eventually ends up representing the company and the the Moore, who's one of the fifty percent shareholders, in an involuntary dissolution action against Springle. Springle had actually filed it against Moore and the company, trying to dissolve the company. Case went forward. It sounds like Springle ends up losing the case, the, or the company gets dissolved, or whatever may happen along that those ways. And then she turns around and sues the Cox firm and Gibet. I think they're I think they're different lawyers. There was there was three sets of lawyers. But anyway, she turns around and sues all of them and argues that they violated their professional duties. The lawyers violated their professional duties by undertaking representation of the company without her consent and rendering legal advice in the underlying the the, the lawsuit um that was adverse to her own interests. And that that was her lawyer because it was her lawyer. And there's an implied attorney-client relationship because she was a 50% shareholder. And so the case raises some interesting issues. First of all, if you're a lawyer and you're representing a corporation, do you have a relationship with with the shareholders? And the answer to that is generally no. No. But there can be implied attorney-client relationships. The next issue is if a a shareholder of a company is suing the corporation's lawyers, they don't have a direct action against the lawyers. They have a derivative action. A derivative action. You learn about that in law school, I think. Well, they didn't exist when I was in law school. Oh, no. Somebody's going to listen to that and believe that's actually true. No, but what is a derivative action, Sean? Um, it's when you file a lawsuit on behalf of all shareholders, I believe. Because the corporation itself won't pursue it. You're right. pursuing it on behalf of the shareholders. Correct. Yep. Okay, so then the next issue comes up in this case is whether or not there was an implied attorney-client relationship. So the first thing we have to decide is exactly what is an implied attorney-client relationship. Well, what is an implied uh, attorney-client relationship, Brian? Well, an attorney-client relationship could exist, and there's certainly case law out there that says it exists, when at least there's some evidence that there was a duty of a lawyer in a corporation to provide specific services to a shareholder, whether or not there was any specific conduct, whether there was contact, anything like that. And in this case, the court went through this and they said, there are two key cases on point which deal with the attorney-client relationship in situations like this. One of them is called Johnson versus Superior Court. 
and that's a 1995 decision. And another one is called Responsible Citizens, citizens right? Mm-hmm. And that's a California Supreme Court case. And both of those cases deal with it. And the court analyzes that and says there's really no indication here of any evidence. But it does an analysis of looking for specific evidence or information. Yeah, and here um, they say they find that the plaintiff cannot establish that there was an implied attorney-client relationship. They look at a number of the factors from responsible citizens, and and they say that those aren't met here. So the um, the plaintiff here was seeking damages. Um, she she was seeking remuneration of what was paid to the lawyers, right? And she never paid that money, so she they they find that she doesn't have standing. She had no evidence whatsoever that. that her shares were devalued as a result of the work that the lawyers did. The uh, nature of the implied attorney client relationship wasn't actually affected here. Even if there were circumstances that the corporate lawyer might have owed a duty, you have to look at the totality of the circumstances to determine whether or not a duty actually existed. And here there was just simply no evidence whatsoever that the lawyers were doing anything other than acting to protect the interests of the corporation, not her personal interests. That isn't their job to protect their interests. And also the final nail in the coffin is there was a factual evidence in this case that once she learned that these lawyers had been hired and that there was an action that was going to be pursued to do to um, dissolve the corporation, the plaintiff in the case actually withdrew all the company assets and kept them for herself. Yeah. So ultimately, um, you know, you can have a situation where the lawyers owe a duty to shareholders, but this isn't one of them. Um, this is a good case, though, to get a primer on what those circumstances are that would create that. All right, so now we're going to go and do a pair of cases which um, have some common thread about the Dynamex decision. We'll talk about that. But um, they also have other nuanced issues. And the first one is Henderson versus Equilon Enterprises and um, Shell Oil, right, Sean? Yeah. Yeah, so so this is a this is an interesting case. It has to do with the dual or joint employer doctrine. Um, Danville is a company in California that operates Shell gas stations. And the best way to think of this company is think of them as a franchise franchisee. Or franchisor franchisee because Shell is the franchisor. Yeah, so think of them as like the guy that owns a bunch of McDonald's's or the company that owns a number of McDonald's's and think of Shell as the McDonald's. Um and the Situation here is that someone named Henderson got terminated from uh, by Danville, um, and he was a manager at some point that managed a number of stations. That First Danville tried operated. to sue in a class action for yep. wage and hour violations, found out another class action was pending against the same defendants on the same theory, and the case was stayed as a result of that, and then dismissed the class allegations and pursued it as an individual case. That isn't really what this is about. Then they went on to the joint employment relationship and analyzed whether or not there was a joint employment relationship. Because the issue is he's trying to get Shell on the hook for the conduct of Danville, uh, or he's trying to make a claim Correct. against Shell. And Shell's saying, we have nothing to do with this. This is Danville. Danville controls the com- controls these operations. Danville does the hiring, does the firing, which is true. The, the, the facts here are that Danville is tasked with, or at least delegated the task of hiring, firing, making uh But there's also decisions. evidence here that Shell had some control, that Shell had Absolutely. software in place. That's why I use the term dele- delegated, not not that Shell doesn't have the right to. It's just Shell delegated uh, that to them. And in fact, Shell 
retains the right to ask Danville to remove an employee. So they do have the ability to, to kind of make those types of choices. Right. And the first thing they look at is whether or not this joint employment relationship applies in wage and hour cases. We've covered this before. There's a California Supreme Court case called Martinez that dealt with the rules that would apply for whether or not there's a joint uh, employer relationship. And they looked at those rules, which involve the definition of to suffer and permit to work under California law, which defines an employer. They looked at the common law, and they looked at all of those factors in the case. And then what's interesting about this is that they, the Court of Appeal then said, hey, even though we're the first district court of appeal up in Northern California, the second or the fourth, I can't remember, district court of appeal had this exact same case against this exact same defendant in a case called Curry versus Equilon in a published decision about a year earlier. And that court concluded that there was no triable issue of fact about whether or not there was a joint employer. Because the because the company there, it wasn't Danville, but it was some other operator. And that operator, not Shell, alone managed and controlled every aspect of the employment relationship with its gas station employees. And that's so right there – the plaintiff had a difficult um, uh, battle ahead of him, which was – Because the same had, set of facts have, have already come out. He has you know, the same set it. of facts against the same defendant for the same issues and the same arguments. And he was trying – the first thing he was trying to do was distinguish it and say that the first DCA should depart from the second DCA and say that it's a completely different case and you should come to a different result. And the court flatly said, no, we're not going to do that. So obviously, if there are other cases against your same defendant that have the same facts and circumstances, be wary. But that isn't the reason I put this case in here today. The reason I put this case in is, I think, a very interesting issue which we have to look at, which is the joint employer liability after Dynamex. Yeah, that that's an issue that comes up. It's going to come up in our next case as well. It's going to come up. Um, it, it's going to become a ballot addressing Dynamex or uh, the corporation's attempt to fight Dynamex is going to come up. Uh, so a quick reminder, Dynamex soon. is the case that held that somebody who's classified as an independent contractor could be actually an employee. It adopted a ABC test. California calls it the ABC test which presumptively considers all workers to be employees and permits workers to be classified as independent contractors only under very limited circumstances. And, and should we, maybe we should we should review those circumstances. I think it's it's three factors, like, or, or ABC are the factors. Uh, worker is free from control and direction from the hirer. The worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's um, work, and that the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade. They can they can do their own thing. So what the court here said, and and it really does have a crossover into this issue about the joint employer doctrine, because the court, the Supreme Court in Dynamex specifically said um, that we look at the words uh, suffer and permit, suffer and permit work, suffer and permit work. Is it somebody who's, you know, controlling you? Is it somebody who has an exercise of control? And what the court here in this decision said is Dynamex just does not apply to these joint employer situations because it's a really a limited decision deciding if somebody's an employee at all. Yeah. And and I'm troubled by that. I don't know if that's the right decision. I think that Dynamex certainly has enough language which defines what an employee is. So if it defines what an employee is, why wouldn't define what an employee is, at least in the joint employer context as well? 
right? Why can't Dynamex be applied to, you know, let's say just like this is a perfect example. Shell is a joint employer. Well, to determine whether or not Shell's an employer, why not look at the Dynamex ABC factors? And so what the court says is we're going to stop the analysis of Dynamex once somebody's an employee. Once somebody's already deemed to be an employee, as this Henderson fellow was apparently already when the case got started, we're not even going to look at Dynamex for a determination right. or analogy of whether or not they be an employee under the joint work. Right, work. under the joint doctrine. They're limiting Dynamex to um, uh, an analysis of whether or not someone's an employee versus an independent contractor, not whether Shell or some other third th- th- potentially third party is that person's employer. So, you know, it's it's kind of creating the outer bounds of the Dynamex analysis now. So and that takes us to our last case today, which is mm-hmm. Gonzalez versus San Gabriel Transit. We're still talking really about Dynamex here. Uh, and Gonzalez is the first case to come up in front of the um, Court of Appeal, the second DCA in this situation, which asked the question whether or not Dynamex was retroactive. Okay, And the, the, the decision in this case was that it in fact is retroactive. The case itself is rather uninteresting in the facts. It was a traditional taxi cab business where I guess the drivers were considered to be um, independent contractors by the by the company, and the case looked at the analysis and the issues, and the first thing they came up with was that under Dynamex, this person is considered to be an employee and not an independent contractor. So then the next question is, is Dynamex retroactive? And before I get to the answer to that. Let's not spoil it. Let's, let me give you a little. A the little, suspense is killing me. I know. It's going to kill you. The, something very important is this, this is going to the California Supreme Court. I believe this case or a similar case has already been accepted for review. So the California Supreme Court is going to ultimately clarify the question. And what the case held here in Gonzalez was that um, under Dynamex, it is absolutely retroactive. There's no reason to conclude that Dynamex would depart from the usual rule of retroactivity, that um, under the labor code, the labor code claims, even if the claims occurred before Dynamex came down, the rationale of Dynamex applies. I have no problem with this. I think this is absolutely the right decision. I think that you have to have certain factors, which they don't reach in this case, to determine whether or not it is going to be retroactive. So, it's retroactive right now. I, I predict that the California Supreme Court will find it retroactive. I see no reason why this Supreme Court, with the current composition, will find it anything other than retroactive. However, as long as we're on the subject of dynamics and the classification of somebody who might otherwise have been included or, or determined to be an independent contractor as a um, an independent contractor or an employee, an employee after Dynamex, what business, shot did that affect more than maybe any other business in California? The rideshare business. And what is the rideshare business? Like Uber, Lyft, and those companies of that nature. Little startups. Little startups. Which, valued at billions of dollars. Which probably made a lot of their money on the backs of people who thought that this was really cool because they could work when they want to work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there is no question that the way Dynamex is phrased, it has a direct action on those people working in the gig economy. Oh, yeah. And I've consistently said that the gig economy in its breadth is so dangerous because I get that if somebody maybe is working three or four days a month and they make a few bucks off of um, the gig economy, that that person might be some kind of an independent contractor. But if you're working 75 hours a month, a week, 
and you are making all of your money and putting food on your table and feeding your family as a result of being a, a driver for Uber or something like that, that's called a job. Yeah. Well, anyway, and, there's, and and the law provides for certain protections when and you're working a job. And then the legislature, yeah. in this term that just recently ended, actively actually enacted legislation further defining and explaining how Dynamex would work, codifying Dynamex, and making and basically pushing Dynamex down the throats of the Uber companies who probably made billions of dollars on the back of these drivers. Well, what have these companies done? So now they're working on a ballot initiative. Um, qualified to, it. To, yeah, they qualified a ballot initiative. Um, to try to undo Dynamex, undo the statute. And the minute the ballot initiative qualifies, the minute it qualified, the law is suspended. Now, it wouldn't suspend Dynamex because that's common law, decisional authority. But this initiative, it definitely has undermined. And as last time I looked... These companies are willing to put in over a hundred million dollars to get this initiative passed. Oh yeah, this is going to be dressed up as this is for the safety of travelers. It's it's for the betterment of the environment. It's for allowing people the opportunity to work in the way they want to work. Uh, freedom of employment. That's what it's, it's going to be presented as. There's going to be a concerted, very well funded campaign. Stay tuned. You know, California voters are not normally swayed by somebody who spends bazillions of dollars and knowingly spends it. But on the other hand, it'll get the message out. The unions will be on the other side. They'll have money, but they're not going to have $100 million. I mean, honestly, the Uber companies, the, the Glyphs, all these companies, the sky's the limit. They'll spend whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, it's this that is just to it, it, this is just a business decision, and they'll put in however much it takes. You know, anything so, can be bought. Stay tuned. Long way between now and November of 2020, as we all know. Yeah. So that's all our cases for today. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, hope you found it interesting. We certainly did. We always find ourselves interesting. Yeah. And that's all you have to so say. Tell, tell them when they catch when they can catch us. We're on when, when are we on the we're air? Drive time when mornings are we on the air? in Los Angeles. No, we're, yeah. we're, we're next not on week. Radio. Same same station, same time. Sure, we'll no, have another yeah. podcast next week. Uh, find we us appreciate online. you listening in, and find us online at kbklawyers.com. Please subscribe and rate our podcast, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot.